So if we can successfully restore the beavers and allow, allow them to kind of create this, this diverse habitat, we will also help them to bring back all the species. You know, what can they bring? Cleaner water, reducing the risk of flooding and drought. So, you know, all these things they do are actually part of, you know, our amb ambition for nature recovery and for, you know, making sure we are more resilient to climate change as well. And welcome to The Lodgecast, a nature and wildlife podcast brought to you by the Beaver Trust. I'm Sophie Pavel. And I'm Eva Bishop. Each episode, we bring you the latest news from the Beaver Trust as we welcome beavers back to our rivers to restore our countryside and create resilient landscapes. And we also explore the state of nature in the UK and speak to fascinating experts and inspiring individuals along the way. Today, we're joined by Delphine Pouget, Principal Advisor for the Species Reintroduction Programme and the Beaver Lead at Natural England, which is the government's advisory body for nature in England. Sophie, hello. Hey, Eva. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. Looking forward to this episode. It's an important one today. It is indeed. Farming and beavers and beaver policy. Mm. But we've not spared too much time for, for uh, a little catch-up, so let's have one of those now for this series. Oh, How's everything excellent. going? And any exciting news in your neck of the woods? Um, well, I've had a, a nice few days celebrating my dad's 65th birthday with the fam. And uh, to, to celebrate this ripe age and his new wisdom, apparently, according to him, <laughs> um, we got him in the sea in Cornwall with no wetsuit. He was wearing Threw him in the sea. I can confirm. Threw him in the sea and uh, had his debut cold water immersion experience. Oh, amazing. And to top it all off, there was a, a curious seal about 50 metres away just popping up to have a look and seeing what we were up to. And um, no, it was really special and there's something really joyful about watching what that experience does to someone else for the first time mm. and to see their joy in it and he just couldn't stop talking about it so that was really special it's very contagious isn't it that energy yeah it really was <laughs> and oh. the cold and um, the cold oh, anyway happy birthday, daddy pavel thank you very much i will relay <laughs> that but um I would like a chicken update, please, because no. long-time Lodgecast listeners will know that Eva and her chickens is a podcast in itself. Uh, so, Eva, please, <laughs> fire away with your chickens. Producers now are whirring. Um, well, the chickens, so they've moved house too. They oh. travelled down the M5 one morning, the cockerel crowing all the one way image. with me. <laughs> And have been installed on a uh, my oh. sister's farm, actually. Where, but but the main news at the moment is, of course, bird flu. So they're now caged oh, and enclosed dear. in quite a small oh, no. area. So they're doing well, but um, it's a sad time for for chicken keepers, really, because yeah, we have to take yeah. these measures to protect um, all bird life and, and try and stop the spread of this disease. Yeah, but it's it's, it's quite stuff. sad times for the little free rangers. Yeah. Um, mm, indeed. So they're in lockdown. Is the chicken update really? Yeah. Ah, hopefully soon to be free. If indeed. Sort out bird flu. Thanks indeed. for the update. Really appreciated that. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> love to the did. chickens. Uh, love to the chickens. Anyway, I am really looking forward to chatting with Delphine today and to unpick some of the complicated world of um, financing farming and nature recovery from Natural England's perspective. So we know nature restoration isn't going to happen at the speed and scale that we all want and need without environmental schemes and options that are 
basically financially attractive enough to the people managing land and balancing the books. So we'll talk a little bit on incentives today, I think. Yeah, I mean, money never sounds like a sexy topic, but it is a vitally important one. And as is so often the case, it really is the backbone in this discussion. It's always the end question that people have is, where's the money? What's the incentive? So this is a great opportunity to sit across the table and explore the importance and the role of government departments like DEFRA and their advisory organisations like Natural England in ensuring a robust and positive long-term future for nature across the UK. So let's pause right there, because you've just mentioned and introduced DEFRA and Natural England. Can you explain for anyone who might not know the ins and outs, what those two roles, uh, the two department roles are? Yeah, so DEFRA, I mean, it's an acronym that's battered about in all sorts of meetings in the conservation sector and on the news and everything. But I only really have recently understood exactly the role that it plays. So DEFRA stands for the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs and environment and food is the key. It's in the name. So DEFRA, of which Natural England is an arm, they work together to protect the environment and to protect the farming community. And as we've seen already in the previous two episodes of Series 4 of the Lodgecast, those are two threads that cannot be untangled or managed in isolation. They absolutely, food and farming, work in tandem. Good. So... It seems that we need to look at and explore the sort of joined up approach that we need for large scale change and how we get NGOs working with policymakers, but in tune with land management at the same time. And looking at beaver policy specifically, we have one of the policy advisors in the room with us today. So we can dive a little into the recent legislation change that now means that it's an offence to deliberately disturb, capture or kill beavers or even damage their homes and dams and breeding sites without licence issued by Natural England. Yeah, so obviously their protection back in the 1st of October in 2022 was really welcomed here at Beaver Trust as it is a huge step in helping beavers to return to Britain. Yes, so what we need next is the policy in place to look at wild releases across England. And joining us today, we have someone from Natural England who is guiding that process. Yeah, so the Scottish strategy was actually released as of autumn 2022 and was signed by multiple stakeholders, including national land management organisations like the NFUS, which is the National Farmers Union of Scotland. And what we want to see is, can we expect to see the same for England, given wild beavers have been living in southern England for over 10 years? You know, it would be great if we felt that England was ready to take the leap and suddenly be braver with policy decisions. And if not, then why are we still waiting when the roadmap to beaver restoration is pretty much laid out? Today, we are delighted to welcome to the Lodgecast Delphine Pouget, who is the beaver lead at Natural England. Natural England issue the wildlife management licences that are required to move, capture or kill beavers. They also work with stakeholders and offer beaver management training and education. So Delphine, thank you so much for joining us and a warm welcome to the Lodgecast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you and thank you very much for having me. It's great. Great to have you here. It's a pleasure. So uh, as you know, because we've just found out that Delphine is a listener listeners of the Lodgecast, which is very exciting. Um, We're going to do the fact off, which is very exciting. So as you know, it's just a bit of friendly competition between me and Eva to uh, sort of jostle for the best fact, judged by you. So I'm going to start off with beavers and their incredible fur. So like lots of social mammals, beavers spend much of their time grooming. But I don't know if you've ever wondered, Delphine, um, have you ever wondered how they reach the, the sort of nooks and crannies in their 
<laughs> within their fur. Um, well, I will answer it for you because they recruit a willing family member. So mutual grooming in this way isn't just vital to strengthen and maintain social bonds as mammals, but actually with beavers, this act essentially re-waterproofs the beaver fur, making it nice and watertight so they can carry on being semi-aquatic mammals. So there we go. They can re-waterproof their own fur by mutual grooming. Oh, that's very nice. Could do the same. That's a very lovely fact. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. So, um... My one this week is about buried beaver teeth, and I, I, it fascinated me, so that's why I was sort of bringing it. It combines the Anglo-Saxon renewed human interest in beaver exploitation, not so good for beavers, but with their habit of burying the dead with grave goods. So the youngest, the fact is that the youngest human known to be buried with a beaver tooth was an eight-month-old baby found in an early 7th century grave near Dunstable, Bedfordshire. Wow. Um, and the tooth was found without a mount. Some of them had mounts, jewellery and things like that. But it was found with other beads. So a beaver incisor was buried with an eight-month-old baby in the 7th century. Oh, wow. That is amazing. Amazing. It's quite, it's quite incredible. Oh, so do I have to judge now which yeah. facts I'm going to go for? Yes, uh, no Gosh. time like the present. I just love them both. I mean, the, the grooming one is quite fantastic because it's really show how social animals they are and, you know, you can't take them um, as, a, as a single mm. animal. They really live mm. there with their family and need them. But I just love the beaver teeth one as well. And I've got a friend who actually got me to try to find beaver teeth for her. She's a paleontologist and she recreates oh, this, wow. fan, this fantastic Stone Age and Bronze Age, um, you know, replica of how human lived before. And beaver was a big thing. Yeah. So she's trying to get pelts and oh, teeth. And so, oh. so I think I'm going to go for that one. Oh. Because I find it oh. really, very, like, it's our kind of relation with uh, with the beavers, really, as was born like many years ago that's a brilliant justification yeah well done Eva once again oh, thanks very much Delphine honoured <laughs> sorry Sophie <laughs> that's okay that's okay uh, I'll forgive you this time um well I mean as we're as we're talking as we're straight into talking about beavers Delphine um have you ever seen a beaver in Britain and if so can you tell us about a particularly memorable encounter so quite incredibly and disappointingly, no, not in <gasps> oh. Britain. I have, okay. I feel I have so because, I mean, you know, me and my colleagues are always going up and down the country, uh, talking to people about beavers and what they do. Um, but I live in York and also we have a f- magnificent enclosure in Cropton Forest where they've done incredible thing. Um, I've never been there in the hours where beavers, you know, let themselves see and uh, probably also with too many people. Um, but I have seen them. I've seen them in um, in Germany. I went on a field trip in Saxony last year where we were kind of meeting lots of peoples and communities to understand the, the experience of living with um, species like beavers and also wolves. Um, mm. And we were staying in a little B&B uh, in a small village and there was a small pond there where there was a beaver family. So, you know, first morning you go there, it's dark, very quiet, and you just experience it. You know, that kind of how, you know, magnificent is just to expect something, something's going to happen, <laughs> you know. Magic and then money. here they are, here they are, beavers, you know, swimming about, doing what they do, um, munching on a bit of vegetation, swimming about and, and um, diving in. So that was, that was fantastic. And then I was back there every other morning of that week just to kind of experience it again and again. It was brilliant. Nice. Amazing. That's very, very cool. And just uh, to reiterate to our listeners, your job title is, is, well, part of it is Beaver Lead at Natural England. 
Um, what inspired you to take that role, and what you know, what drew you to it, or was it sort of part of something else you were doing? It's it's fascinating. It's a very exciting opportunity. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's just um, you know we've been involved in looking at potential beaver reintroduction in England for a long time, um, even in natural England. You know, there was feasibility study done, I think it was 2009. Um, I mean, and, and beavers were already in Scotland by then. And so, you know, after the Revolta trial, I think there was like a, a bit more need to kind of start, you know, putting things together and coordinating what our input could be. And so uh, it just happened to be something that we were going to go for and, and, you know, and need to drive the so the work on this. So I'm I'm really pleased. I was already involved in you know some of the beaver work with the enclosures and and there is like a such an interest and enthusiasm around this that it's it's been an incredible journey for me and uh, you know coordinating the work across natural England it's it's fantastic because every time I ask someone oh could you do something beaver related well. You know, everyone says, yes, says yes, of course. Isn't that great? <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. Nice. And, and can you expand a bit on what Natural England's role is in beaver reintroductions for England? How does it um, differ, particularly from NGOs such as Beaver Trust? Yes, of course. I mean, you know, Natural England is, uh, uh, you know, a statutory advisor on the natural environment. Uh, and our purpose is to ensure that we conserve, enhance, make it better for our generation and the future generations. Um, so we have an incredibly wealth of expertise across the board on all the topics regarding nature conservation. And maybe what we are best known at is uh, is to be a regulator. So we're licensing activities that would otherwise be be unlawful. But I want to think that we are enabling projects to happen, contribute in particular to, to the success of species reintroduction. Um, so we are working with very closely with, with DEFRA. You know, when there is an ambition and a policy around a particular species, we then enable things to happen behind it. Um, so we have a very keen interest in, uh, in reintroduction generally, but it's not done solely by us. So our reintroduction projects are collaborative and our partners, stakeholders, you are key to the success. We need your passion, dedication, expertise to bring these proposals to life. And so we we, we are there to guide, accompany, support um, in many ways, whether it's been on person on the ground in our, our teams or be more nationally kind of to lead some stakeholder engagement. So we kind of try to be there and support projects along the way. So I think, yeah, what, I, what I'd like to think of us as being is enablers, enablers of projects to happen mm. by building the evidence, by advising, promoting good practice and funding certain aspects of the projects. Yeah, it's such an important job. And, and you're really at the epicentre, Delphine, of, of all of this. And, and over the last 18 months, it's just been so much going on. And in 2022, um, Beaver legislation has had a bit of a roller coaster. I think it's fair to say. How did you feel when the various U-turns and ups and downs happened earlier that summer in 2022? How did I feel? Oh, like it was never going to happen. Uh, it's been incredibly challenging. As a beaver reintroduction? It, it, no, it, as a legis- the legislation in the particular. Legislation. Yeah, okay. no, I think, you know, beaver reintroduction has happened, right? They're yeah. here. The legislation, yes, it, it took a lot of, um, or it takes a lot of work. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, putting legislation together is always challenging. Um, but also everything that is going behind is, is really hard. But I think when it finally happened, it was, you know, a significant moment for the recovery of the species. And it's really, really important to recognize them as part of the British fauna. And it will help them safeguard the populations, um, make sure that management action don't undermine also and don't threaten their recovery. 
And it's, it's uh, very important as we do have beavers already while living in England. Um, they are still vulnerable. They are still small and fragmented and we need to make sure we, we kind of, uh, you know, recover them in the, in the right way. And so the legislation will enable to do that. So yeah, it was. Good, good, uh, I think good that's a really for, well, lovely reminder, actually, they are still a vulnerable species at this stage and we need to continue to support their re- return if we want them. How important do you think the role of the beaver could be in helping achieve the overall goals of the 25-year environment plan? Well, they are providing a lot of um, of the ambition of the 25-year environment plan. So they are, um, they are an important eastern species. So we know they build incredible wetland habitat, which transform our landscape, improve our degraded waterways. They will not only improve the health of you know, the environment, but also improve the conditions for other species to thrive in. So if we can successfully restore the beavers and allow, allow them to kind of create this, this diverse habitat, we will also help them to bring back all the species. So, um, you know, what can they bring? Cleaner water, uh, increased resilience to climate change, reducing the risk of flooding and drought. Uh, you know, after the last summer, I think we are even more convinced that what they're doing actually helps. I've just seen the footage of, uh, of the wetland habitats they've created. And, you know, some landowners have said they've, they've managed yeah. to keep yeah. water despite Thanks the extreme beavers during that yeah. that sum- summer yes so you know all these things they do are actually part of you know our amb- ambition for nature recovery and for you know kind of uh, making sure we mm. we are more resilient to climate change as well yeah um, that's really encouraging to hear and i think um while we've got you here it would be great to talk a little bit about money so obviously to finance large scale joined up nature nature restoration we need to pay farmers and landowners to provide space for nature so how do we financially value the input that beavers could deliver here as you've just described i think there there are several several things there that we could talk about um so first of all there are um you know the new ambition around land management schemes that you know, aim to make farming and agricultural activities more sustainable, encourage landowners to make space for nature and farm landscape. So this is quite exciting to rethink how farming and nature can work together. So, you know, the aim encourage landowners to undertake a nature recovery by rewarding them with public money for public goods. So this is kind of the, the phrase that we use. So if we take beavers, for example, what can they do? They, we know that our rivers in England are in very poor conditions. Uh, they no longer function naturally. They've been straightened, modified by, by man over the years. And only, I think, 14% have a good ecological status. So beavers can help reverse this by restoring natural processes, reconnecting rivers and floodplains, filtering, uh, you know, kind of pollutants. And so if we can encourage farmers to move away from, you know, farming right up to the water edge, incentivize them to set aside some land, to create wetland habitats, they can be rewarded by delivering these public goods, cleaner water, increased biodiversity, elevation of floods, you know, everything we mentioned earlier. So these are these ecosystem services. Um, how can we value them? I mean, there is a whole topic around, you know, valuation of the environment. Mm-hmm. Remember even studying that when I was at uni. And, you know, our economists are, are really scratching their heads and they are things that are easier to value. But we, va- we do value nature. So how can you put a, you know, a number to it? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I think we need to do better. So, you know, we can value ecosystem services. 
can we maybe try to link people who are going to benefit from beavers and what they do to people who might actually suffer some of the cost because you know they also do create some conflicts if we can connect that and make you know make ways to incentivizing that ecosystem service offer then we can uh, you know find a way to to ha- to strike the right balance so one of the one of the topics that is that currently um, being talked about a lot is green finance I mean you've probably heard about it yeah. I can't say I'm an expert. So we, with ELMS, um, we hope that you will fund farmers to create space for nature. Um, but there are also some great examples of how green finance can provide additional funds to restore habitat and uh, natural processes. So we need to find ways to incentivize private investment for the benefit of beavers. So how can we encourage this investment I don't know, beaver credits? Could we do something around beaver credits? You know, the same way you have, you know, carbon credits, you could have beaver credits. Mm, nice. But it's, it's, I think some of the questions we, we, uh, we, we have is, at the moment, I think what we've explored is a little bit more straightforward. So if you decide to plant a tree for, you know, the benefits they bring, you have an objective, okay, let's apply, plant 100 trees. Well, you can deliver, right? You can plant 100 trees in this place. You've... So beavers may or may not deliver on what you expect them to deliver. So it's slightly more, you need something a bit more flexible there that allows the ecosystem service to be there or not. So it's kind of how do you value something that you're not sure is going to happen because beaver might just mm. decide to do it somewhere else potentially or might decide just not to do it at all. It's impossible to quantify in a way, isn't it? Yeah. So I think this is what probably we're st- struggling a little bit with. I mean, you know, having said that, I'm really not an expert, but I think it's we need to think about it because green finance could, in terms of nature recovery generally, could actually, you know, help bring funds that are, will be really essential to make this happen and happen in a good way. It's a fascinating topic, green finance, I think. We would like to dive into... Um, something the sort of some sometimes the elephant in the room the wild release side of things so we've talked about a little bit there about beneficiaries and those that might also suffer losses or conflicts from beaver introduction and um that is a good example of the complexity of wild release uh, licensing and the whole policy that's needed next which is something that you're clearly you know leading on and, and really closely w- woven into uh, we know of projects that are waiting for that information to come out because they don't want to have, have the expense of enclosures. And it's a very, a very different concept, actually, in many ways. Can we ask you a little bit about what are the next steps to getting to the point of allowing wild releases without an enclosure and, and what Natural England are going through at the moment? <laughs> Give us a bit of insight into the complexity of that process. Yes, yes, I can. I mean, we are definitely supporting restoration of the beavers in England and we have advised EFRA on what we need to make it happen. Um, so last year, you may know that there's been a public consultation that has a number of questions and people's views on, you know, the reintroduction, the proposed approach for doing that. So we are working very closely with DEFRA and the Environment Agency to you know, develop guidance, engage with partners, um, you know, talk to all the interested parties to prepare for the wide release, sanctioned wide release. And we know of the projects you mentioned about, you know, they are really eager, they are ready to press the, the, the green button there to go ahead. We, we, we are talking to them about it. So what are we doing and what can we do? So there is a number of things we are doing, being very busy. So in order to make that happen, we need to have criteria. So projects that we will want to apply for a license to 
to release wild beavers, we need to meet a certain number of criteria. Um, so they are um, designed to, to allow projects to maximize the benefits that beaver can bring, but also understand potential impacts and also be prepared to mitigate or monitor that. Um, so that's that's one of the of the work that is ongoing. Um, a lot of research is happening. I mean, within Natural England and outside Natural England, there is a, a high volume of papers coming out all the time about understanding all aspects of beaver introduction, be it on the ecology, on the hydrology, on the social science, on the economy. So so that's that's part of the picture. You know, the more you understand about you know what could happen, um, the better you are prepared to to live with it, I guess. Um, so currently, for example, we are also commissioning surveys to uh, have a better understanding of the distribution of beavers in England. So there are a few wild free population that exist. We know they are there, but we don't know exactly where and how many. So understanding where they are will help us to to be better prepared, I guess. So this one already there, but they, you know, that will inform potential uh, wild release, you know, to know do we need more beavers to make them population sustainable, for example, in that particular location. Whilst we're doing, we also, so the legal protection of beavers has, has meant that we now license manage certain management activities, uh, such as dam removal to ensure people can respond to problems. So that's also part of the picture, because obviously when beavers, what really will happen, we'll need to be able in that to manage some of the impact. Um, so that's that's what's happening. Um, I think it's what else can we do? So I think we need to keep talking, keep raising awareness, uh, and going engagement with landowners and, and communities mm. is going to be key. So I think the, mm. that coexistence question is is you know is being raised as one of the uh, of the key topic. And so you know we need we need to kind of make sure we've got uh, an opportunity to to talk about what is potentially still missing that we haven't looked at. You know we've talk to our counterparts in, in Scotland. I went to Romania to the latest symposium to share, you know, ideas and understand how they do with, you know, in countries where they are, they are ready, they've got beavers. So I think we are ready. Um, we just need now, uh, uh, you know, formal decision made so, so we, can, we can move ahead. Um, yeah, I want to be optimistic. It's going to happen. No, <laughs> oh, that's very encouraging to hear, actually, some optimism that it's, it sounds like there's a lot going on and actually there's good cause for... I hope that we'll get this flowing soon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, Delphine, I'd love to, I mean, you, you've spoken about um, how paramount it is to the success of this whole project um, to engage with farmers and landowners and to keep the conversations going and to do these surveys and to basically have as, as deep an understanding as possible as to where beavers are and what impacts they're having at the moment across Britain. Um, what will be beavers' most significant impact on farming? So, I mean, there are two types of impacts. There's a the positive and the negative, I think. And that's, that's quite important to kind of hear about both. I think the, the positive, we've talked about it. Mm -hmm. and, and farming will benefit from that. And I think a lot of landowners and farmers have already, uh, already convinced and already kind of engaging. Some of them have beavers on their land and they... They are aware that they could bring a lot of benefits and might be in a better position in the future because they do have mm -hmm. this kind of more resilient landscape around them. But they are a challenge and I think we should not under 
value what they mean for for some farmers in particular and you know when i was mentioning you know some will get the benefit some will get the cost it's that inequality that we need to also yeah. balance so what we do they borrow so they borrow in, the, in banks and they kind of create instability so they that could lead to erosion they create floods so they can you know they build dams and they they can flood you know agricultural land and valuable crops and, and we went up to scotland Recently, we were talking to a farmer who has a potato crop, which, you know, if flooded by beavers, is an incredible cost to their livelihood. And I think this is really important that we engage with them um, in a way that, you know, we understand where the conflict might be. And I think this is one of the, the, the planning. You know, there is a spatial kind of interest to look at where will be those, those impacts from beavers and Maybe there are places in the country, not maybe, there are places in the country where the benefit will be higher, and, but places where the conflict will be higher. Um, so we need to think about that spatial prioritization as well. There is something there that needs to be explored a bit more. It's really fascinating. I mean, Beaver Trust gets asked quite a lot, you know, is there a right place to do to, to release beavers? And it's not for us to say, you know, we're here to support beaver introductions, but Natural England are the licensing organisation. So I guess you've just explained a little bit about what you have to consider? Yeah, no, I think I think the you know the good place and the bad place is a is a question that um, I don't know. I think people are a bit wary of discussing it um, because I think it's it feels like either you are yes. behind or not. Well, it's no. not as mm. clear cut. Um, and of course, really. the other thing is that they are a wild animal, and so in reintroducing them, we have to anticipate that they <laughs> will be everywhere because they mm. are mobile, and that's what we're yes. that's what we're aiming for, actually. But, you know, one, one reflection I got when I was sharing our experience to people who are in, you know, some of the European countries who have many more beavers, they said, you know, you were so lucky because yes. you can anticipate, you know, this mm. and therefore plan for it. And I think this is, this is really what, um, what we should really, you know, before it's too late, really kind of think carefully. You know, is our society prepared to have beavers everywhere tomorrow? Absolutely. In every yeah. corners of the country? Maybe not. So let's yeah. let's be mm. honest about it and actually try try to work together to to really make sure that we've got the benefits before getting the conflicts. So important. Yeah. I mean it's it's um it strikes me why you when you're when you're talking about these things that it's just about striking a balance, isn't it? And we'd love to hear from you what Natural England's vision is for balancing countrywide species reintroduction and landscape scale restoration alongside, of course, the growing need for regenerative agriculture and food security, water security, all those sorts of things. What, what's your vision there? So um, I think nature recovery and food production should work together. And I'm going to refer to a few points Tony Juniper made in a key speech for um, a food and nature conference earlier this week. Um, so there is something about food security there that has been quoted many times in 2022. And I think the war in Ukraine has, has prompted this. Um, I mean, I was in a workshop for um, the development of the Scot Beaver Scotty strategy. And, you know, one of the first persons speaking talked about that, you know, that pressure on, on being self-reliant mm. for our food production. But I think what we also need to hear maybe in this context of, you know, species and conflict with, with farming is that farming, farmers are really feeling the harsh reality of the current situation. Mm. Cost is going up the roof for fuels, for fertilizers, um, for crops, for everything. And so the impact of climate change is also, you know, adding to that pressure. 
So, but of course, it's fundamental to to our life, right? We need farmers. Um, well, this is it, and it also doesn't equate necessarily just having the maximum land, having the best food output. Um, because it's about reinstating, restoring system function, and that includes species and wildlife, and that's what this—that's what's driving this whole sort of resurgence of regenerative agriculture. And and I think that the species restoration ties into that because it's all one big system, and it's so it's a fascinating, fascinating sort of hub of you know you're connecting all the dots, aren't you? So um, yeah, I think you know we would we would definitely do very differently if we were starting from a blank page with a country that didn't have human beings yeah. on it. <laughs> <laughs> mm. that would be we will have a very different approach but now you There's know vision <laughs> yes yeah challenging but you know ultimate natural england um <laughs> <laughs> can we relate this question to um river buffer zones as well so one thing that we're looking at because we're beaver trust is a partnership we're looking at river buffers and some sort of payments um and uh incentives and policy around setting aside a little bit more land around rivers for them to start to function better and restore that resilience in the system and a benefit of that is that the conflict with beavers to a degree starts to go away or to reduce certainly is there room for natural england supporting that kind of initiative and how do you look at simplifying the incentives and environmental payments for that on top of all the others that exist at the moment Sorry, massive question, yeah, but I mean, I'd love to hear your, yeah. <laughs> your thoughts on that. I'll, I'll give a few thoughts. Um, so yeah, river buffers, I think it's totally uh, a, an idea. I mean, for beavers, but for so many other things, you know, restoring natural function is already happening, right? But for beavers, you know, I think beaver experts say that if you provide a 10 to 20 meter buffer to uh, a water course, you reduce the likelihood of conflict by 90%. So it's, you know, it's quite an incredible figure. When we, uh, when the legal protection uh, came into force on the 1st of October, we published a five step to kind of managing beavers. The first one is about engagement, aware, raising awareness and making sure, um, you know, kind of increasing the knowledge on beavers. But the second one is making space for nature uh, and natural processes. So this is, this is really key. So there will, there are water options being developed in, in, under ELMS. Um, there is a lot of thinking with environmental agency and DEFRA on dynamic foot floodplain, making space for water. And I think beavers can be a very useful catalyst because, you know, I think, I think it's broader than beaver um, because we want to restore our rivers. But it's also part of what we discussed earlier about, you know, our ecosystem services. And therefore, we need to be able to reward farmers for doing that. I think there is some challenge around this, um, just reflecting on a visit I've done in Scotland where, you know, we were talking to a landowner who had a, one of these kind of um, high value crop land and the incentive was not very high for him to mm. actually make space. For not high just enough. Yeah. Not yeah, high yeah. enough. Because his crop was actually giving him what he needed. So... It's not as, as straightforward. I think there are places where it will be more challenging. So we need to keep maybe engaging with the conversation and see, or maybe accept that in some places that might not be possible. Hmm. Delphine, you mentioned that you are you know, uh, a regulator as well. Natural England is one of the big roles. And with um, beaver wild releases and the, the sort of progress of all the legislation comes also a concern from the farming community, because this is all about beavers and farming, this, this series in the podcast about the uh, potential need for control of the species in uh, moments when they do cause a conflict and an immediate risk to farming operations. 
And we have heard of concerns about um, the licensing, the regulatory sort of speed of processing licensing so that they can do something about that and manage the creature. Is that something that you're um, needing to consider and you're aware of as a regulator in terms of how you plan for their more widespread reintroduction, the sort of speed of response, essentially? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that was a, um, probably the first comment and concern we got when we started discussing licensing around management activities for beavers. And I think the system we've put in place has listened and included all these concerns. So the system we have in place, I think there is, you know, and I, I can't hide the fact that we had issues in terms of uh, speed of response and licensing generally in Natural England. And there is a lot yeah. of work that has been done to improve that. So, um, but knowing that, having that experience on our back meant that we've, what we've put in place is a, actually a speedy process. So we've got a system that where we accreditate people to have certain license in advance of them needing, needing them. Um, so yeah. we've run a number of training and, you know, Beaver Trust, you've contributed significantly with Rashin, like, you know, leading some of, the, of this training. So we are increasing the capacity of people who can actually directly manage. So, of course, there is a hierarchy. So the low impact. So there is, you know, things you can do without license and the things mm-hmm. that a certain license will allow, you know, a group of people to do. And then as you increase the impact you may have on the beavers, then there is more scrutiny. So when you go to, to the lethal control, yes, it will be high impact on the species. And therefore, we want to make sure it's done properly because we have, a, you know, a welfare interest there. So I think it's it's going to be, you know, we are not anticipating lethal control is going to be a thing tomorrow. And this is why I was saying about making sure we be a bit careful about where we introduce beavers in the first place. So we don't get there. This is a fifth step. So there are five steps that we need to go through before we even get there. Um, and I think, you know, understanding the, the pressure and the emergency will be part of our system. So we have in place, you know, emergency protocol where people can just ring us and get automatically mm. a license, not necessarily for lethal control. But I think what we'd like to have in place, it's a more more a roundup system where, you know, from the time there is beaver, there is already conversation mm. happening. Great. We have yeah. people on the ground who can monitor the impact and can anticipate issues um, you know, examples are we were looking in Scotland around infrastructure. I mean, it's not farming, but similar challenge where you've got, a, you know, a beaver pond near, near a railway. They start digging. OK, you know, let's be there. Let's kind of avoid hmm. get it, getting to a point where you need to get rid of the beavers. And there's lots of things that can be done before. So I think it's, um, there will be instances where we might not anticipate and we need to be ready for that. And I think we will be. And I think we've um, talked to the farming communities. They've came to workshops, they, they are telling us what they think and we are developing the system with that in mind. So it will be, you know, as efficient as possible when it comes to be used. That's great to hear. Thanks very much. Delphine, it's so lovely to hear you sound so motivated and passionate and genuinely fascinated and excited by your job and your mission. Um, what gives you hope for the future in Britain and for nature in general? I think there is a real desire. I was listening to one of your podcasts um, yesterday, oh. just to kind of have a feel about, um, you know. And uh, you were talking to Arlen Rickard, and he was. Oh, he, oh, <laughs> and he we was, love Arlen. <laughs> I gathered that. Um, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> he was talking about you know the the hope he has in the future generation and how he was you know, putting himself into the generations that trash stuff and and mm. and now seeing his, his you know his children and the next generations that are have the hard job. Um 
But I think, you know, compared to a few years ago, I think there is a real sense of urgency that people are now embracing because they've seen what you can do. I mean, last summer, you know, we've experienced temperatures, you know, I've experienced in the south of Italy, but never here. So that, that was something incredible. And I think there is a, a real sense that, you know, we need to do better. Our children yeah. know so much more about it than we did at the same age. Um, and, you know, we, I think there is a lot of people who are really, really keen to make a difference. I think we need to work better together. So there need to be more collaboration. Um, but I think the, the, the excitement is there. So, and, you know, with, with all that passion, expertise and motivation, we can only, you know, succeed. So that's what I want to believe anyway. On, that's one of, in my um, optimistic day. Some days it's a bit more gloomy, but, you know, <laughs> that's mm. part of it. Mm. Yeah, that is part of it, hasn't it? Thank you so much, Delphine. That was fascinating. Total and, pro. Um, Brilliant to have you on. Been really inspiring. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. It was a great, enjoyable experience to be here. Well, um, I don't really know what to say. That was so interesting and kind of not what I was expecting either in the best in the best way. Yeah, I think it was a useful insight into the complexity and the process going on and the multiple people involved in getting establishing this wild release policy and all the cogs that need to be turning in the you know in to, in time with each other terrible analogy but you know what I mean I think there's a lot mm. going on and it was really lovely to meet Delphine as a person behind um, yeah definitely behind the natural England facade so yeah I think it's easy to get I certainly fall into the trap of just assuming that anything policy or, or legislation related is kind of very systemic and kind of boring and impersonal but actually to see someone who's so passionate and so driven and so motivated by the mission of what they're doing and to know that they're in the position they're in yeah. is, is very, very encouraging. So I feel very inspired, actually. I think it also chimes very well with the other um, two guests we've had so far in this series and the general yeah. transition shift yeah. at the moment across Britain. Stuff is happening. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Exciting. Well, ha ha ha. Um, Eva, it's quiz time. Hooray. Hit me. <laughs> Hold on to your non-beaver hat. Um, this is a fun quiz, I think. Anyway, it's uh, it's about famous beavers. Oh. <laughs> um, I mean, it took a, it took a while to compile this quiz, I must say. But I'm gonna just. I mean, dive. there aren't that many famous beavers. <laughs> I know. Really? I had to I had to really really dig deep. <laughs> right. Question one: Famous beavers. What is the female beaver who is among the first to be released into the River Otter Beaver Trial, fondly known as? Is it A. Oh, no. Blue tag. B. Green tag. Or C. Pink tag. Blue, green, or pink. Female Did beaver. River otter. Tag. Or yes. Tag. Tag. Sorry, oh, tag. Blue tag. No, so <laughs> the blue tag beaver. Desperately trying to think how you could relate um, beavers to blue tag. Um, pink tag. C. Correct. Yes, she is the she is the, a veritable celebrity on the river otter. She oh, she nice. loves to uh, to perform in her natural way. <laughs> um, has given rise to many a baby beaver. We love her. Pink tag. Mama beaver. Mama beaver. She's huge as well. Have you ever seen her? Is She's she? absolutely I've massive. I've never seen Mama Beaver pink tag. I've seen no. her with producer Emma on a on a summer poodle in the evening on the Rivotta, and she is blooming oh. enormous. Yeah, well endowed. Let's leave it there. Uh, question two of Famous Beavers. Found in 1921 in Iron Country, Wisconsin, USA, how heavy was the heaviest beaver ever recorded? Bearing in mind it's a North Ooh. American beaver, subtle differences. 
Is it A, £110, B, £90, or C, £200, the heaviest beaver ever recorded? Bearing in mind that beavers typically Can you weigh... Do that in kilos? I can't, unfortunately. <laughs> Bearing in mind that beavers typically weigh between 30 to 60 pounds. And your average human okay. baby is like eight-ish pounds, six to eight pounds. Unless they're mine. <laughs> I, I mean, I was a 10-pounder. So. <laughs> yeah, quite. They're no joke. Right. A, B and C again. What are my options? 30 to 60 pounds, okay, is the average. Is the average. But the, the biggest beaver ever recorded was at 110 pounds, A, 90 pounds, B, or C, 200 pounds. Okay, uh, B. No, it's not £90. It was £110. It was £110. a beefcake or a, a beaver cake. Hey. Very good. Very good. Question three. Famous beavers. This I really like this one. Get ready. A 10 millimetre long beaver ankle bone fossil was found in Montana, USA. And after recent analysis in the summer of 2022... At Ohio State University, it has been described as the oldest amphibious rodent in North America. But how old was it? A, 4 million years, B, 15 million years, or C, 30 million years? How old was this ankle bone fossil of a beaver? And how big was it? I'd, I'm not sure. Oh, 10 millimetres long. Oh, 10 millimetres. So millimeters. a centimetre. Did he? Um... Ooh, that's a really interesting question. 4 million, 10 million or 30 million? 4 million, 15 million, 30 million. <sighs> going to have to hurry you. I'm going to say 30 million. <gasps> yes, 30 million years old this fossil was. And fun fact, this ancient beaver did not have the flat tail that we see and know on beavers today. Really? So it and it likely just ate plants, so not hardwood, literally just leafy plants, and was as small as two pounds. So tiny, teeny tiny beaver, no tail. Oh wow. No hardwood diet. Tinier than a newborn baby. (laughs) Definitely a beaver. But thirty but this is thirty million years ago. So think about what you know, to imagine what planet Earth was like thirty million years ago. It was just amazing. And the fossil was only found last summer. This summer. That's very exciting. Well, there we go. News just in. Two out of three. Fresh in to Sophie's quiz. Brilliant. (laughs) Thank you. Famous beaver quiz. Well done. Um, I mean, I'm slightly disappointed it wasn't all about Sigourney Beaver and co. Well, I thought that was was predictable, you know. Too obvious. Too Too obvious. obvious. Well, there we go. Well done. (laughs) That's it for this episode of The Lodgecast. Make sure you join us again next week as we'll be speaking to acclaimed author and RSPB site manager, Lee Schofield. In fact, please make sure you subscribe to The Lodgecast on your podcast platform of choice so that you don't miss it. And don't forget, it really helps us if you could leave us a review. Yes, please. And for more from Beaver Trust, do search at Beaver Trust on Instagram, Twitter and YouTube and head over to our website beavertrust.org and sign up for our free email newsletter. See you next week. This podcast, as always, is a mixture of fact and opinion. It was hosted by Sophie Pavel and Eva Bishop. It was produced and edited by Emma Brisdian for Beaver Trust. Beaver Trust.